Old Testament, <clears throat> King David was on the run and in hiding and uh, was uh, needing up some encouragement. And so uh, his mighty men went to his hometown and drew water outside of, out, of, out of the well and then snuck it back to him. And uh, he was so encouraged by it. This morning, Scott Nightingale did that for me by going across the street and get me some coffee. But unlike King David, I shall not pour this out on the ground as an offering. I will pour it down my gullet. Because <laughs> you all need that <laughs> for me to do. Mm. I tell you, hey, happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers and those of you who have mothers. I'm so glad. And those of you who are online, I'm so glad that you're with us as well. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. If this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. My name is David. I serve on the pastoral staff. And we are in, there, uh, in the middle of this series called Movements, where we are looking at large swaths of scripture to try to understand what the author is attempting to communicate with us. And uh, the term I like to use is, is zooming out, because we want to zoom out, see a bigger picture, so that we can actually see some of these themes. <clears throat> and uh, currently, we are in what I've been calling the seminary of Jesus. And here it is, Mark chapter 3, Jesus calls a group of men, 12 of them, so that he might be with them and so that he might eventually send them out to do ministry. And then in Mark chapter 6, he begins to send them out two by two. And so everything in between these two verses constitutes, at least in my mind, what Jesus wants his men to understand before they go into ministry. And as such, Mark, the author, is saying, hey, pay attention to these items these ideas. And so we want to see what these themes are between Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 6. And we've, we've learned a, a lot of really interesting things. I've been wanting to do a study on this for a long time once I discovered what was kind of going on here. And, and I know that every single week as I'm preparing for this, I learn something new. And, and I think what's, what's happening here is that <clears throat> Mark is showing us the essentials, the essential underpinnings of, of following Jesus and for a life of ministry. And so we've dealt with things like identity and, and the word of God and the kingdom of God. And of course, last week we learned about lordship. And if these ideas were important to the earliest disciples, then they probably ought to be important to us, don't you think? I mean, if it was important enough for Mark to actually sit down and pen these things, then maybe we ought to pay attention. <clears throat> so, we're going to pick up the story today in Mark chapter 6. I'm going to take this in, in some chunks uh, and then uh, make some observations along the way and then hopefully offer some thoughts here at the end. So let's pick this up um, in <clears throat> chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. Now remember, we just finished the story about a town where uh, Jesus met the ruler of a synagogue, um, his name was Jairus. And so that town, whatever that was, wherever that synagogue was located, he left there and went to his hometown, and we know this as Nazareth, right? This other little town up in Galilee, relatively small town. If I remember right, um, the town probably peaked at some point in its history of maybe nine, ten thousand, 10,000, but was most likely a very small village most of the time. So he's going back and he's accompanied by his disciples. Now, if you read back through um, 
the first few chapters of this, uh, I believe this is the first time he shows up there with his entourage. Because that's kind of what it was like. No, it was, you know, it was a religious or holy entourage, but it was an entourage nonetheless. So Jesus left there and went to his hometown with his disciples. And that actually um, isn't, uh, would not have been unusual. Rabbi traveled with his disciples. So, verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. This, is, again, is not um, uncommon. If you had a traveling rabbi and they would show up at synagogue, they were uh, usually asked to teach. And, of course, you know, um, hometown boy, he gets the opportunity to do this. And many who heard him were amazed. And the word here means to be struck with astonishment. They were astounded by it. And it's a word that's commonly used by Mark to describe the response of people when they encounter the teachings of Jesus. They're astonished because there's a certain level of authority that he's teaching with that they're not used to. And there's, there's a whole reason for that, but ultimately the result is the same from place to place. Then <clears throat> something happens. Something shifts. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Now, isn't it interesting that the text doesn't mention that he's performing miracles? So my, my, my inference here is that his reputation had preceded him at, at some level. Where did he get these things? Where's this wisdom coming from? What are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? So you've got the hometown boy and it begins to prompt questions about his source of doctrine or his source of theology, teaching and wisdom and miracles. And unfortunately, the scene kind of degenerates from there. Look at the very next verse and what comes up. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, what just happened? Because wasn't it just a couple, like one verse ago that they were, they were astonished? Hmm. So we have more questions that come up. Now, this is an important feature uh, and you've heard me talk about this before, we're gonna talk about it again. So I want you to grab your Bermuda shorts and your sunglasses because we're tourists, okay? We need to remember that every time we open the text, there are certain things that are in play and we gotta act like tourists. We have to understand these things a little bit more and there's a couple things that are going on here and I wanna point these out. So the first one is, isn't this the carpenter? Well, yeah. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. For the last probably 18 years or so, Jesus has been working the family trade in order to support his mother because very likely his father has passed away. So remember that back in, uh, what is it, Matthew, they go to Jerusalem. Jesus is about 12 years old and they lose him, right? And we know that it's Mary and Joseph and Jesus. There's no other siblings mentioned. And Joseph is still in the crowd, or he's still part of the, part of the picture. 
And now what we see is Jesus is beginning his ministry. Well, of course, it took 18 years for his eldest brother to be able to take over the family trade and support the family. That's how things work, right? So isn't he the carpenter? Yeah, he's been doing that for a while, getting ready so that his older brother could take over the family business, right? So here we go. But there's something between the lines here that we've got to pay attention to. Isn't Jesus this carpenter? Read, not scholar. This is a person who works with his hands. This isn't a person who, who you know, works with his intellect. This is Jesus the carpenter, not Jesus the scholar, not the academic, not the, the learned one, not the one who went off to college and seminary and all of that. He doesn't have a degree. Isn't Jesus, this Jesus carpenter? And then, notice the very next line. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James? The rest of his family. And here's the thing about um, Judaism. Some of you have heard me say this before. Uh, Jewish history is very interested in who's your daddy. They want to know who your father is. <clears throat> and so men were always identified with their father, even if the father is deceased. So here, nobody is saying, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Mary's son? So in Jewish culture, if you did not identify a, a man with his father, that means that you did not know who his father was. In Judges chapter 11, uh, verse 1, we meet a man named um, Jephthah. And it says, Jephthah was a mighty warrior, but also the son of a harlot. They couldn't list his father's name because they didn't know who he was. Are you beginning to see that identifying him as Mary's son was a bit of an insult? Yeah, you know Mary, she's the one who, you kind of got pregnant out of wedlock. Remember that? This is a small town. Gossip flourishes. Isn't this this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? No mention of Joseph. This is an insult. And furthermore, (laughs) I think this is kind of funny, they took offense at him. They're saying all the offensive stuff, but they took offense to him and the fact that he was teaching these things and they were astonished. Well, that spiraled quickly, don't you think? It really did. So here we have this. Jesus taught. People were astonished. They questioned his theology and they questioned his person and then they were offended. And it's almost like throughout all of this, what they're ultimately saying is, hey, this guy's no better than us. You know, he's out doing all these things and he's getting this reputation, but he's from here and we know a bit of his story and you know what? He's not any better than the rest of us. Again, it spiraled rather quickly. Now, I think we need to hit the pause button here um, because... Uh, there's something implicit um, that we need to stop and talk about because it's worth thinking about.
Whenever a human being takes a risk, especially a kingdom type of risk, a Christian kind of risk, a faith-based risk, it is not uncommon to experience a certain amount of resistance. I mean, think about it. Think about times in your life when you've taken a risk. It doesn't have to be a church risk. It doesn't have to be a Jesus risk. It can just be a risk. There's a certain amount of resistance. And that resistance usually comes from two, one of two sources, right? The first one is external. There's, there, there are uh, forces of resistance that are outside of us um, from other people, maybe directly, but, but um, um, usually indirectly. And we definitely see this online, don't we? You know, God forbid you should post something online and, oh my gosh, then there's just a firestorm of activity and, and it degenerates and you're like, how did this happen? And you're kind of wondering. This is why some of us only post, you know, pictures of our dinner and kittens because it's really hard to argue with cute kittens. <laughs> but it's external to us and there's that kind of resistance and clearly that's what we're seeing here is that there's resistance to the ministry of Jesus. He's taking a kingdom risk by teaching in his own synagogue and what happens? There's resistance. The, the other source of resistance usually comes from inside our own heads whenever we take a risk. And it may have been planted there by somebody else, um, a childhood script or tapes that play in our heads, but it always comes from within nonetheless. And it usually has something to do with, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not fast enough, I'm not, I'm not enough, right? It, that's the type of resistance. Like, I can't do this. I mean, I'm not... What, it's fascinating to me that the resistance that we get externally or comes from internal almost always has the same pattern. It's fascinating to me. And we see it here in Jesus' hometown. I've, and I'll, I'll tell you right now, total confession, I have never seen this before. And I noticed it um, this time around. I think, I think God's speaking to us and we really need to hear this because all of this resistance is wrapped up, whether it's external or internal, it's wrapped up in one word and that's shame. Shame. Because shame always questions two things. Always. Never changes. If you feel yourself going down this path with one of these two questions, you are dealing with shame. Here's the first one. What do you know? What do you know? Isn't that essentially what the hometown is asking him? You know, they're saying, is like, where did he get this teaching? Where did this wisdom come from? What about these miracles? What, do you know? what does he know about this? And sometimes when we're getting ready to take a risk, we're like, I can't do that. What do I know about this? I don't, I don't have anything to say. Shame will grab you by the lapels and say, what do you know? That's exactly what Jesus experienced. They questioned his knowledge and his teaching. And here's a second question. By the way, you should write these down because you need this as a diagnostic. First question is always, what do you know? The second question, who do you think you are? If the first question grabs you by the lapels, the second one shakes you. Who do you think you are? 
Nazareth then questioned his occupation and his family. Who does he think he is? What does he know? Who does he think he is? Who do you think you are? And both question our worthiness. Both of them do. You don't have anything to say. You don't have anything special about you. You're not worthy to even speak into this issue. You're not worthy to be involved. And every single time it's saying that somehow we are not enough. And the resistance tries to shut you down, keep you on the bench, quit the field, disengage. It is trying to shut you down. And yes, Jesus himself experienced what you do because they tried to shut him down. What does he know? He's no better than us. Who does he think he is? And because he went through that, he understands you and he sees you. And he sees right into your very heart and the things that you're wrestling with. He absolutely sees all of it because he experienced it himself. Now, notice how Jesus handled the resistance, how he handled the shame. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. Jesus said to them, who? Who did he say it to? I think he was saying it to everybody. doesn't say that he was just talking to his disciples. He said to them. He spoke it to the people who were trying to shut him down. And that took some courage, didn't it? Seems to me, too, that um, Jesus acknowledges the offense. He acknowledges it. He's not angry, but he's also not silent about it. And he, he more or less calls them out on the hurtfulness a prophet, which he clearly is at this point. A prophet is not without honor except in his own town among his relatives. In other words, yeah, you didn't honor me. He didn't say it directly, but oh, did he get his point across? (laughs) Yeah. He's not angry, but he's not silent. He had the courage to actually tune out the resistance, but he recognized who he was. At the very least, he's a prophet. And by the way, (laughs) Israel has a long history of, 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 of prophets who have to deal with resistance. Okay, long history of this. Uh, in fact, there's large sections of scripture where you can read about it, and I suggest that you do sometime. But the thing of it is, is that in this statement, he acknowledges the hurt. I'm without honor in my own town. The people who should know me the best are saying that I'm no better than they are, but that's not what I'm here to do. What a hurtful thing to say. 
I came to my hometown with my disciples because I wanted to share some of this goodness with all of you that I've been sharing with everyone else. And this is how you're going to treat me? There is hurt here, and he acknowledges it right up front. He says this, Prophet is not without honor, except where people should know him the best. So the question is, what did he do? Here we go. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them, which I really think is quite funny. He couldn't do any miracles, but he did heal people. Yeah, it kind of qualifies, right? Yeah. And he was amazed at their lack of faith, and Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Now, there are lots, there has been a lot of ink spilled over Jesus' lack of ability to do miracles. What? What is this about? Can't do miracles? Hmm. But the point is, he helped who he could. And then, what did he do? He moved on. If my hometown isn't going to accept the good news, if they're not going to listen to it from me, then I'm going to go to places where I can. And so he went around teaching from village to village. He just continued on with his ministry. So he acknowledges the hurt, but he moves on. He does what he can, but he moves on, ultimately. And yeah, he wondered at the lack of faith. I kind of get this feeling, it's almost like the emoji shake my head. It's like, kind of like, ugh, just kind of. The word here um, is not the same word uh, as astonished before. The word here is a little bit different. Um, it means he wondered. And, and I kind of get the impression here that it's kind of a disappointed wonder. Like, oh, jeez, you know, I can't believe it. But he can, because he just experienced it. But the point is, is there's a disappointment that's, that's coming, coming out in the use of this word. But he kept on his purpose, and he moved on to the next village. Now, interestingly enough, in the very next section, Jesus begins to send out his disciples two by two. <laughs> so the shame doesn't actually shut him down. In fact, Jesus begins to expand his operation. Isn't that interesting? There's something else in here that strikes me. Um, that just occurred to me today as I was driving in. And I want to be real careful with this, but I think there's another observation that, that we can make. <clears throat> and I wonder, um, this is something that I'm going to be thinking about for a while, but I wonder if shame is an obstacle to faith. You might want to write that one down. Shame is an obstacle to faith. You probably heard the phrase in the past that hurting people hurt people? Have, have you heard this before? That people who are hurt tend to lash out and hurt others around them. I think it's just kind of a natural human type of thing. And so I think the same thing applies here that people who are ashamed try to shame others. I think shame can definitely be a generational thing. And if that's the case, then when we are feeling ashamed or we are shamed or shunned, it's very easy for us to in turn shame and shun others. Think about that in your own experience. See if that's true. I think that it is. And so here we have this village of Nazareth and I wonder if there's a collective shame in play 
Otherwise, why would you be asking those questions and essentially saying, well, he's no better than us? And by the way, that question, he's no better than us, what does it say about them? It really isn't a commentary on Jesus. It really is a commentary on them as a group of people, as a village here. Many of us don't experience miracles or healing because we feel like we're unworthy. That's shame. And there's something in there that I, I find fascinating because in Mark chapter 9, there's a story of a man who brings his son to Jesus. And he happens to be possessed by an evil spirit and you know, tries to harm the boy. And so Jesus, uh, Jesus walks up and has a conversation with the man and the man says very simply, if you can heal him, and Jesus says to him, if. And he talks about his belief. And the man makes this beautiful statement, and it's a very good one to pray for yourself. I do believe, help me with my unbelief. And I have to step in the shoes of that father for just a moment, because as a dad, one of the things you want to do as a mother, on Mother's Day, one of the things that you want to do is to protect your kids. Am I right? And here you have a worst-case scenario of a father who's dealing with a spiritual enemy that's trying to destroy his son. And he can't help him. Can you imagine that feeling of powerlessness? Can you imagine the shame of not being strong enough to help him? It wasn't that he didn't believe. Why else would he have brought him to Jesus? The desperation that maybe, just maybe, this guy can do what nobody else can. I don't think the issue was belief here. I think the issue was shame as an obstacle to his belief. Because here's the other thing. Jesus said, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, all you gotta have is a little bit. Just a little bit. We'll get you there. I think shame was the obstacle. I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. You know what? Some of that unbelief is, I don't believe that I'm worthy enough for you to do this for me. That's shame. And I can't imagine what that father was feeling. And so I think that what happens for most of us, I know it does for me, is that there's this moment in my mind where I'm thinking about God doing something truly miraculous and wonderful, and you wonder, yeah, I believe that God can do that for other people, but I'm not sure he can do it for me. And I do believe that he can do it, but I'm not sure that he will do it for me because, you know, I got the sin thing. I said that thing to that person back then. I, I did this, this thing when I was younger that I'm really not proud of. And all of a sudden, those things in our past, the accuser of our soul will come in and accuse us of, us of over and over again. And it erodes our Faith it erodes our belief because we are shamed. Tell me I'm wrong. The lesson here, I think, 
Not if, but when you experience shame because you live in a fallen and broken world, guess what? You're going to experience some shame. When you experience that moment of feeling unworthy or unloved, you kind of got to go back to the seminary of Jesus because I think Jesus understood how insidious this could be. I think he understood how dangerous shame actually is to the disciple. And that's why the story appears here. This is why the lesson is here. So when you experience those moments of shame, you have to, be, you have to begin with your identity. Who are you? Who are you? And Jesus told us back in Mark chapter 3, he says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and my mother. Yes, you are a sibling of Jesus. You are adopted as a daughter and son of a living God. That's who you are. Worthy? Yes, in spades. Because you're identified with him. If you are doing God's will, if you're doing his work, if you're seeking him, trying to be in his presence, learning what he has in mind for you and his kingdom, then guess what? You in the club. You part of the family. You have that identity. There's no unworthiness in there. God has already chosen you. You are worthy. And the second thing is you know what to do. You have to remember who you are, but you know what to do. You sow the word. The farmer sows the word. Mark chapter 4, verse 14. That's what you do. And sometimes you have to sow that word in your own heart. Remember what he said about you. Ephesians chapter 1. You are adopted as a daughter and son of the living God. You might have to remind yourself of your identity by going back to the word, but you have to sow the word. And that's what Jesus essentially did. Yes, they, they tried to shame him. They tried to sh shut him down. What did he do? He sowed the word. He performed the miracles that he could. He did his teaching. Yes, they were astonished. He did what he was supposed to do. He sowed the word. And so it is with us. So remember who you are. You already know what to do. But remember also who you serve. Remember, we went through three things. Jesus was Lord over the, the natural realm, he calmed a storm. He's Lord over the spiritual realm. He cast out the legion of demons. And he's even Lord over sickness and death, the worst things that supposedly can happen to us. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. That's your king. Who do you serve? So it's not just who you are, it's not just what you do, but who do you serve? I am on a mission here serving the king of heaven and the kingdom that we want to we bring from heaven down to earth. Worthiness? Not even a question. Not even a single question. So what I want to remind you is that when we look at the seminary of Jesus, there's movement in the text. He is moving us from identity to work, to lordship, but he's also warning us against don't fall for the lie of shame. And it will come. And it's very subtle. It's very insidious. It's a royal pain in the neck to deal with. But ultimately, when you read 
what Jesus is saying here, and you zoom out and you see this big picture, it strengthens your heart, and it straightens your spine, and it allows you to look at the enemy and say, shut up. You don't have a place here. I'm not worried about worthiness because I serve the king. He told me what to do and he told me who I am and I don't have to pay attention to the shame. In my experience, um, and I've been doing this a little while, it's very rare that I, I, I meet somebody who doesn't wrestle with shame at some level, some more than others. But if you're wondering why you feel like your prayers aren't being answered. And you wonder um, why you don't hear the voice of God sometimes. Maybe it's not because you don't have enough faith. Maybe it's because you are wrestling with a shame issue where you feel unworthy and God says, no, we need to deal with that first. I do think shame is an obstacle to faith. I'll probably spend the rest of my life trying to figure that one out, and that's okay, because I want to figure that one out. Wherever you are today, um, there's a good chance that if you haven't experienced shame yet, you will, and you may have some of those feelings. David keeps talking about the presence of God. Dan keeps talking about being in the presence, and yet I don't feel the presence of God, and I don't, I don't hear God's voice talking to me. Can we get real for one moment, and can I just ask you the tough question? Is there a part of you who feels unworthy to hear God's voice? Got kind of quiet in here, didn't it? We need to break that off. You are so loved. You are so worthy because God made you that way. Jesus made you that way. That moment that you said, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me, guess what? You're worthy. If you're of theological mind, we call that justification. But if you're like me, it means you're in the family. And God sees you differently. And you are worthy to hear his voice, to be led by him, to partner with him in the rescue of the world. That's you. That's not somebody else. That's not just the people sitting next to you. That's you. We all get to play. Everybody gets to play. And so I just want to pause here for a moment. And I want to pray over you. But I also want to um, invite you afterwards. Um, I think I'm going to go sit over there or stand over there. Maybe you need a little extra prayer. Don't let shame try to talk you out of it. Don't leave here today without just a couple minutes of prayer. Jesus, We know that you're here. You know, we declared that before service began. 
that we are gathered in your name and by your word we know that you are here so you are here and because you are here this is a house of miracles the Lord is in this place and he's no respecter of distance so he doesn't have to be in this theater or in this auditorium he's in homes with people watching online you are in that place as well I'm so grateful that you can do that In the name of Jesus and by the blood on the cross, the voice of shame that's in your head that tells that you are unworthy, I command you to be silent. Stop talking. Your words have no value here. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill that silence with your voice the one that reminds us, that whispers to us that we are children of God, that you love us, that you've never forsaken us, and that by your blood we are made worthy to hear you, to be led by you, to partner with you in kingdom activities. We get to do that because of what you first did for us. And I'm sure that every person here has something that they're wrestling with. They've got sin issues and they've got lack of love. But you know, that doesn't disqualify us from listening to you, from hearing you, being led by you, to partnering with you. We trust you to, to work on all those other things. But today, we deal with shame. God, I pray that you would break off that shame in every person that's here because I know it is. I know it is. And whether you do it all at once or whether you do it over a period of time, we leave that up to you because you are the great physician and so you know how to handle all those things. And so every person who's listening, who's online, who's here, break off the shame. No longer be tormented by those scripts in the head, by the tapes that they continually hear that somehow they're not worthy Yes, they are because of your work. Break it off, Lord. Holy Spirit, fill this place and do the work that only you can do. God, you are the head of Thrive Church. I am simply an associate. But I think this is something, I believe this is something as head of the church you want for us. You want this type of freedom. Help us to take the seminary of Jesus to heart. To remember who we are. To continue to, to do what we're called to do. And remember that we serve the king. pray that shame would not get in our way. And those who are um, after service, they want to come and pray with me. That's great. Look, if you're online, I know that Pastor James is, is online as well. You can, you can shoot him a note, either direct message or try to get in touch with us at the church. We'd love to pray with you. Jesus, be present as we sing this song. Remind us again how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.